Hello, it's Tuesday, December the 21st, and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail newsroom. They're an important part of Christmas as the nativity scene, presents and Father Christmas. And now, for the first time, you can study pantomime at university. Also, we're talking about the borrowing figures. They're the second worst on record. That's not good, because that costs a lot of money in interest rates, and that's also going to affect your pension. Gas rises. The cap comes off in April. I'm speaking to a leading figure in the energy industry who says the Chancellor is going to have to intervene to mitigate the cost of our bills next year, which could rise by as much as £700. The Queen. She's cancelled Christmas at Sandringham from the second year running. So who will be with her at Windsor Castle on Christmas Day? But first, he's still in deep political trouble. That's Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister. I'm talking to a leading figure from Conservative Home, who's also Boris Johnson's biographer, to ask whether he thinks this time next year he'll still be Prime Minister. So Boris Johnson is where he often is, making headlines, but probably not for the reasons he wants, because he's been backed into a corner, both by his own actions during a pandemic, and he's also got a bitterly divided party uh, over issues such as more restrictions on COVID, and of course there's deep concern about the loss of North Staffordshire in that by-election last week, one of the Conservative Party's safest seats. So, even now, as we prepare for Christmas, some Tory MPs are saying it quietly, is time up for Boris Johnson, the man who delivered them a landslide election victory just two years ago. Joining me now is Andrew Jimson, who's writer for Conservative Home, and he is, of course, a biographer of Boris Johnson. He's here to help test the mood of the parliamentary party and the party in the country. Andrew, um, they're breaking, they've broken up for Christmas in an incredibly fractious mood, MPs. We suspect perhaps some letters have already gone in to the chairman of the 1922 committee. We never know if any, how many. Um, what's it, how do you assess the mood of the party? Well, they're certainly very angry with... Boris Johnson, uh, he, of course, he, he got to the top as a breaker of rules, a liberator, the man who said it was fine to vote to leave the European Union, even if the Financial Times and the CBI and the establishment generally disapproved. Um, we could do it and we'd all, it, would, it would all work out fine. Yeah. Now here he is, the man who's, who, who's in, trying to enforce the rules, um, stricter rules about what we can do to deal with this terrible pandemic and his own troops are very angry about it and of course they're very um they're very worried too by the result of the north shropshire by-election uh and they think that johnson may be losing his unique quality as an election winner so uh, and, and and they feel that for they've always felt sort of um there've been successive waves of dissatisfaction because they never liked dominic cummings um, who had the utmost scorn for Tory MPs. Mm. So they didn't like it when he was employing Cummings. They didn't like it when he stuck to Cummings during the Barnard Castle affair. Sure. And they're now, of course, they feel that this whole business of Owen Patterson and then of the parties at number 10 has been has been very badly handled by the Prime Minister. And there's a lot of talk, Andrew, that he's got to change his ways, he's got to change his style. I don't think he can. He's only got one way of operating, and it's always been fairly chaotic and shambolic. Yes, but he has shown amazing ability to come back from setbacks, which would have driven pretty much anyone else out of public life. 
Um, and so it's worked for him, and he thinks he can come back from this, and he thinks he can mend fences with his MPs. Um, he's always remarkably optimistic about this, and he, he, he thinks that as Prime Minister you have a... Of course, he doesn't have total control of the agenda because the, the pandemic is, sort of drives other subjects out of people's minds, but he does have some control of the agenda. So he, he will reckon that after Christmas he can, he can get back on the front foot, but it has been a very, very, very bad period. Um, and, his, and, and as you say, his own troops are, are fed up and they're cross about things like the green stuff as well, because they think that yeah. costs normal people an awful lot of money. Mm-hmm. They're cross about putting up taxes um, um, which they think conservatives shouldn't be doing. Um, so they're, they're generally, and they're cross actually that he's so uncritical of the National Health Service. Um, so um, he's, on the other hand, the Prime Minister, he, he can claim to be more in tune with public opinion perhaps than, his, than, than those of his MPs who want, want this country to be sort of Singapore on sea. Um, I think Johnson has detected that there's no real, no great public demand for that. Um, and he's instead spending more money and, and so on. Um, he, he, he can hope that he's... Well, the trouble is he's stolen a lot of Labour's clothes uh, and some of his own people now think he's, 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 he's become a socialist, basically. Yeah, and of course he lost Lord Frost. Lord Frost, who was dealing with all the Brexit stuff. Lord Frost, a proper Tory, yes. a man who's cited um, his dissatisfaction over the uh, the COVID restrictions, his dissatisfaction over the green agenda, which you've just referred to, Andrew, and also the fact taxes are now at their highest level. The tax burden is at its highest level for 70 years under a Conservative government. So that's pretty careless to lose somebody as good as Lord Frost, who did that Brexit deal for him just a year ago. Can he afford many more um, banana skins like that, Andrew? Well, there, are, there have been prime ministers who've survived. In fact, Margaret Thatcher, oddly enough, I mean, in, in the end, she did 11, over 11 years, but um, she could have fallen on numerous occasions, actually. So it's, it's an inherently precarious position, but he will feel the loss of Frost, although Frost is not exactly a household name. No. I found that the younger members of my own household when I, when I said at breakfast, have you seen that Lord Frost has resigned? They had no idea How interesting. <laughs> who, yeah. who I was talking about. Nevertheless, uh, Johnson brought Frost in as his special advisor at the yeah. Foreign Office, um, and he's, he was absolutely key negotiator getting Brexit done. So uh, Johnson will feel the loss of him, and, the, and this sort of vote of no confidence in him by this very, very close colleague. He'll feel that acutely, I think. I think so. If you were, you're not a betting man, Andrew, but what's your hunch that he ride, he weathers the storm and um, carries on well into next year and beyond? I bet on Johnson, actually. And, yeah, um, me too. But, of course, but I would just, I would just warn any punters listening to this podcast that I am very often wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but I think his chances of pulling through are better than than you might than you might think, just because he's so resilient and, and the power of incumbency is great and it is. he was after all he, he you know he was put in only two years ago by the british people yeah i think i'm with you on that that's um andrew jimson who is of course boris johnson's biographer and also a star writer for conservative home thanks for joining us visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to our podcast videos opinion pieces and much more if you want to get in touch you can tweet us at mailplus or me at tory boy pierce 
So Omicron, it's affecting all of us. And now the Queen has announced she's cancelling her traditional family Christmas at Sandringham for the second year in succession. She's going to instead remain at Windsor Castle for the festive period. So who will be with her, if anyone? And what will the rest of the royals be getting up to? Joining me now is the royal commentator and editor-in-chief at Majesty magazine, Ingrid Seward. Ingrid... Um, uh, very, t- it would be disappointing for the Queen because she cancelled last year. This is the first Christmas, of course, without the Duke of Edinburgh, and of course she's going to be spending it, if not alone, not with all her family. No, she won't. I think it was well. They left it till the last minute. All the staff were prepared to go to Sandringham, so it, it wasn't something that had been pre-planned. Um, but they had left the window open, if you see what I mean. So yeah. there was, a, you know, they. If she suddenly decided to stay at Windsor, it was all organised. But I think she probably thought she has to do everything by the book. And if anything went wrong, she is um, nearer to any medical help. Yeah. She's near to London. And she's got Andrew and Fergie and two of her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren, um, August and um, Eugenie's baby little girl, Sienna. Yeah. They, they are very nearby. I mean, uh, Eugenie's at Frogmore, yeah. and uh, Beatrice will be there staying at, staying at Royal Lodge. So they've got a contingent of family in place. And then there's, there's the Duke and, uh, uh, sorry, Prince Edward and Sophie, who yeah. are at Bagshot Park. Which is quite so close, isn't it? It's very close, yeah. So there's a contingent there. And then, of course, I'm sure, absolutely sure, the Prince of Wales uh, and the Duchess of Cornwall will be there, but they might only stay one night. Who knows? Yeah. But I'm sure they will be there because then Charles usually, you know, goes on to Scotland or maybe he'll go to Sandringham. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think anyone will go to Sandringham this year, Ingrid? Well, he, I think the, the Prince of Wales might because he runs the estate there now and yeah, he's made it, it all completely yeah. organic and I don't know what happens when the shoot has been organised. I mean, Sandringham's a shooting estate, so maybe he'll go there uh, and um, on Boxing Day and manage that. Yeah. Uh, and what of Princess Anne? Uh, she's down there in Gatcombe Park in Gloucestershire. Do you think we'll see sight of her anywhere? I'm sure. I mean, I just don't think she would leave her, her mother at Christmas, and I'm absolutely certain that, that she will be there. And I, I think that Peter Phillips will be there too, but probably not with his girls, because, of course, he's now divorced as well. Yes, of course, of course. And we normally see the Queen and the Royal Family going to church on, on the Sandringham Estates. Do you think we'll see them, any of them, Ingrid, at Windsor Castle on Christmas Day? I don't think we'll see them on Christmas Day because the Queen will go to the... Well, they can all go to the private chapel. Yes. Windsor, which I'm sure a lot of people have seen. Yeah. I mean, it's very nice, and that's what they did last year. Um, but whether we'll see them after Christmas, I don't know. It depends if there's a, if there's a second lockdown. Yeah, oh, I don't think there's going to be, Ingrid, but what do I know? Um, but um, And what of the Queen? She's 95 now. Um, it's, uh, it's not too indelicate to say there won't be... She, she's not going to be with us forever. She will be hoping at some point that she can get back into that tradition because she's been going, I think, to Sandringham since 1988. Yes, when they, they started to rewire Windsor. Yeah. Um, and they used to always be at, be at uh, Sandringham. Then they came back to Windsor when the family got so big. And they each had their own tower, as it were. Yes. And then they moved back to Sandringham with just the immediate royal family. And the Queen loves it there because it was her father's favourite place. And, of course, this year is the 70th anniversary yes. of his death. 
Yeah. So whether or not she'll make it up there for uh, the anniversary of his death on the 6th of February, I don't know. Yeah, because that's, of course, when she passes that latest milestone, 70 years, our monarch, platinum monarch. And then, of course, we have the celebrations in June. And just so people understand, Ingrid, February the 6th was when her father, George VI, died. And I think he was at Sandringham, wasn't he? He was at Sandringham. And I find one of those wonderful old books that one occasionally finds. And it's all about his last day his last days and the shooting and he went shooting and it it actually details all the things he shot rabbits mostly and how he he had a wonderful day and he said to all his friends oh i'll see you on thursday uh went in the house you know had a bath had dinner um and went to bed and that was it yeah well best way to go isn't it if uh, oh, absolutely except pe- far too young wasn't far he? too young far too young but peacefully in his sleep and of course and of course then the prince the princess what she was in kenya with prince philip wasn't she and had to be told that not only was her father dead but she was now the queen amazing well exactly she she was um on, on a sort of little special safari at a place called treetops which was overlooking a waterhole uh, and it was masses and masses of game, and she was loving it. And so she actually became queen when she was taking pictures of game with her cine camera. Um, and she didn't know it, of course, until she, until until a few hours later. Mm-hmm. Amazing, amazing. Well, Ingrid, you always bring such great perspectives to this, and I hope you're planning a nice Christmas, Ingrid. Well, hopefully we all will. We just don't know what's going to happen, do we? I, I, I just, I wonder. I wonder what's going to happen. But we've got. We're going to have Christmas. We know that. That's the main thing. That's the main thing. That's Ingrid Stewart. She's royal commentator. She's editor in chief at Majesty Magazine. So gas and electricity bills for millions of Britons could soar to a record two thousand a year in twenty twenty two. So the energy price cap's going to be lifted and doubled in the coming months. The current cap is set at £1,277 a year and has been since October, which means Britons could have to pay more than £700 extra annually. On the line now is Emma Pinchbeck, who's the Chief Executive of Energy UK. Emma, um, if you could explain why um, the cost of uh, gas and electricity is going up so much, something to do with Russia, something to do with raw materials... Yeah, I mean, it's, it, uh, this always sounds like a cop-out when I say this, and I promise it isn't. It's a reflection of how complicated the global energy market is. But basically, since around September, gas prices have been going up considerably. Um, they're, they're up for lots of different reasons. Asia has taken a lot of the LNG, which is the liquid gas that we ship as their economy opened up. Um, and as economies opened up differently after the pandemic, that's changed the kind of demand patterns too. And then, of course, there's geopolitics at play. A lot of our yeah. gas comes from volatile countries where, you know, changes in the politics there can affect the change in gas flows. And we've got reduced gas flows coming into Europe. Essentially, gas is massively expensive. We've never seen anything like this, certainly not in my um, lifetime and, and my time in the sector. The um, of course we we depend heavily on uh, on a lot of gas that comes into Europe comes from Russia. President Putin likes to play politics with the West, and um, there is also the prospect of that big pipeline, which would um, I think cross Germany. Now that whole pipeline has been delayed for all sorts of political reasons. If that can if that that delay continues, or indeed if it doesn't get built at all. Emma, is that going? What sort of effect is that going to have on energy supplies and therefore price? 
Well, definitely the flow from Russia into Europe is one of the factors that you know changes the the gas price overall. The the gas price is actually set um, more broadly than that, though. So we get our, we get our gas, for example, from Norway and from the North Sea still too. So it's not that we're dependent specifically on that Russia gas for our security supply. But when there's a constraint anywhere in the market, the price goes up. And yes, we are seeing constrained supplies from Russia. And of course, some of the political behavior from Russia makes the traders nervous, which means we assume that gas might not be there and the price goes up. So over the last week or so, as we've seen change behavior from Russia, that has caused the prices to spike again as they were starting to come down a bit. And so we're very, very worried about pretty much the whole of next year now. People listening to this are going to be thinking, how much did he say prices are going to go up? £700 yeah. in a year. That's a lot of money. That's um, over £50 a month, um, uh, or b- virtually £60 a month. Is there anything families can do, Emma, to um, try to insulate themselves even a little bit from what's coming? So what we're saying to people is if you're vulnerable, particularly vulnerable and fuel poor, there's already support available. And I think a lot of people don't know that that exists. So we're saying, you you know, contact your supplier or if you're uncomfortable contacting your supplier, you can talk to systems advice. But the sort of price rises we're we're talking about here. And by the way, we don't yet know how how, how prices will go or whether anything changes. So, but they are going to go up. Um, in, in that regard, they're, they're looking high enough to start bothering a lot of people. So basically, yes, of course, individual households can do things and there's support available. But more importantly, we're asking the government to intervene as, as governments across Europe have intervened to give people some bill relief across next year. It's really, really important they realise how serious it could be for not just your poor and vulnerable people, but everyone. Now, we know, um, interesting you mentioned that, because um, just a few months ago, Kwasi Kwarteng, the business secretary, told uh, a TV interview or radio interview that he was in talks with the Treasury about just that, to try to help uh, some of the, the commercial companies uh, offset some of these increases. Uh, and he was slapped down pretty brutally by the Treasury. Uh, uh, is, is it your understanding that anything is, is being talked about by government, by the Treasury, to help out with people's bills? Well, let's hope so, because don't forget that energy prices underpin the whole of the economy and things yeah. like inflation, not just how we're all going to be struggling to pay our bills. And and this price rise is unprecedented. We're talking about, you know, I've seen figures about 50% um, bill rises, and that's obviously really worrying for people at a time when it's also, you know, cold and we've got the pandemic and everything else. So it, the other important thing to note is if they don't act Yes, prices might start to to fall in the spring in terms of the gas price, but because of the consequences of, of this period, the cost in the system, the supplier failures we've seen, it's quite likely that our bills will keep going up because a lot of our bills are not the gas price, they're policy costs and things. So basically, without government intervention, without the Chancellor intervening, we think we're all in a bit of trouble and we'd love to see government step up. Industry's done genuinely what it can do at mm. this point. We really, really need some additional support. Well, it's interesting because you'd have probably heard on the radio, on the news, that um, there's been a billion pounds extra just pledged now for the hospitality industry, which is in dire straits again just before Christmas. So perhaps Father Christmas is going to come calling <laughs> um, next year, uh, Emma. We live in hope. Yeah, well, you know, I, I get to sit on calls with the Secretary of State about the pandemic too. And again, important to note for businesses that energy is a key business cost as well, particularly for small businesses. So 
we're we're worried about this for the whole economy we're worried about customers of all kinds and yes yeah. you're right once the treasuries dealt with this particular omicron rave perhaps they could turn their attention to the energy crisis well let's hope so and if they do of course we'll be reporting it here that's emma pinchbeck who's chief executive of energy uk thanks for joining us Time for a regular city update now with Ruth Sunlin, who's business editor at the Daily Mail. Ruth, those borrowing figures are eye-watering. I, I understand they're amongst the highest in the history of this country. Uh, absolutely. So um, I'll give you the biggest figure first, because I always like to like to do that. So the national debt, that's the total that we, that we owe, um, that's topped 2.3 trillion for the first time. So that's absolutely huge. And it's becoming more expensive to service it. So interest rates are, as we know, quite low, and that's even after the recent increase last week. But about half of the national debt is actually pegged to inflation. So when inflation goes up, as it has done, then the interest rate payments go up in lockstep with that. So they've risen by 54% and it's that now comes in at 42.9 billion and that's going to rise as inflation goes up. So to cut a long story short, um, we owe an awful lot of money and mm. it's costing us a lot to pay the interest on it. Now, what happened today was we got some new figures from the Office for National Statistics and they actually showed that borrowing has gone down um, in the first eight months of the tax year. But that's only compared with last year, yes. um, which, of course, was, was huge, even more huge. So what we saw in November, 17.4 billion worth of, of borrowing in November. Now, if you were, I, were to run up an overdraft that big um, mm. in that shorter space of time, we would be in a lot of trouble with our bank, wouldn't we? So, um, would. you know, this, this is big money. And this, this is the context, Andrew, against which you've got to see the support that the Chancellor is giving for the hospitality industry. And also, in a broader sense, I think the context against which we have to see where we are with with covid and what we what attitude we do want to take towards it as a society and as an economy and on on and talking of the hospitality industry ruth we know it's having another calamitous period because mm. um we may we're not in lockdown but if you wander around where we are in in west london near the mail the streets are deserted uh if you look at bristol images of bristol liverpool all around the country shopping centers are deserted the chancellor has announced more money for the hospitality industry, £1 billion plus £100 million contingency fund, which is just going to add even more to the national debt. It is, and and really in the end, what the hospitality industry needs, obviously this help is going to be welcome um, and all support that helps people get through this difficult period is is going to be welcome. But what the industry really needs, what all what every industry really needs is an economy that's open as much as it can be and that's that's able to flourish. So the way we're going to get out of the debt crisis is by having a strong economy. Um, And I think what we really have to do is accept that it's not going to be viable 
for the indefinite future just to keep on this kind of hokey-cokey style approach of opening the economy and then shutting it down again at the first sign of of a new variant. So, you know, whilst this will be welcome, I think what the hospitality industry would probably really like to see is a climate of greater individual responsibility where businesses and people themselves can make sensible decisions about, well, are they going to go out or, or not without being scaremongered um, and without lurching in and out of, of lockdowns or lockdowns by any other name, which is what this looks like, as you say, in, in Kensington and other parts of the country. Yeah. It, it looks like a lockdown by, by default, really, doesn't it? It certainly does. Um, uh, uh, I suppose it was very difficult for the Prime Minister because uh, Professor Chris Whitty at that Downing Street briefing last week, uh, Ruth, he did say people should limit and minimise social contact mm-hmm. the prime minister said well i'm going to carry on doing what i do best but um uh, i'd rather he'd slapped him down frankly <laughs> well that's right and i i think what's a bit disconcerting when i look at all of this uh, in my own personal view is it seems as if what we know about covid and the treatments and the vaccination that we have and the vaccinations we have now have advanced immeasurably since this pandemic began but the policy responses still seem to be stuck in march 2020 even though so much else has changed and that's what i find a bit a bit hard you know i i think well we are in a different world now we do have vaccinations we do have treatments that seem to work pretty well and we also just know a lot more about it don't we you know when it when it first when it first broke it was completely new and so we had some draconian measures and maybe at that stage it was understandable but at some stage we have to learn to live with this and we have to have an economy that's that's able to function we can't go on we're a rich country but we won't be forever if we carry on like this well said and would you please tell the prime minister <laughs> give me the chance andrew all right i that's... would just love to have that chance <laughs> absolutely that's the fabulous ruth sunderland who is of course business editor at the daily mail thanks for joining us so pantomimes they are a staple of christmas they are in fact very important part of every theatre, particularly in the provinces and regions, uh, annual income. Dick Whittington, Jack and the Beanstalk, Cinderella, all of them great, greatly popular at this time of year. Now, there's a new master's degree in contemporary pantomime practice, which is aiming to give students the skills they need to bring a successful pantomime to the stage it's being it's being run at staffordshire university from next year joining me now is the co-developer of the course dr robert marsden theater director and head of media performance and communication at staffordshire university so dr marsden um look i love pantomime i will be going to see julian clary in pantomime at the london palladium as long as they don't introduce any more wretched covid restrictions before we talk about your course can you explain why pantomime is such an integral part of the British Christmas, but it hasn't ever really caught on in the same way, I think, in other parts of the world. That's, that's really interesting, Andrew, and great to hear that you're off to the Palladium and, and a lover of pantomime. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's intrinsically British, isn't it? Even though it draws on lots of European traditions and Greek and Roman traditions, we've, we've made this our own. It's, 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 it's uniquely British. We've there are pockets across the world that have tried in, in South Africa and Los Angeles and so on and, and areas where there's expats and so on. But yes, it's intrinsically British. And I think it taps into our 
anarchic humour as well, Andrew, in relation to, we've, we've often had, haven't we, we can draw a line back to um, men dressed as women through, mm. through the theatrical histories. We've got that, that really visual slapstick humour in our, in our DNA, in a way, as well as all the verbal patter and the wit and the repartee. So I think it really taps into something in, in, in this country. And, it, and it's for families, I love about it there's something for everybody in the panto there's the visual humor for the kids you know getting slosh all over the characters um faces but then there's some lovely witty stuff for the adults as well and I think it brings all the families together and I think we need that more than ever at the moment I quite agree with you now from next year I think it's next September you're going to be offering this master's degree in contemporary pantomime practice uh, so um, I think it involves research into practical study uh, uh, and, and, and you'll be helping students master key elements, which is everything from slapstick, audience participation uh, and the rest. Uh, so um, what exactly will you be teaching them, Dr. Marsden? Gosh, there's, there's quite a lot to pack into a year. Yeah. I think um, so as it <laughs> came about because we wanted to really, we've got a responsibility, I think, to, to, hand, to keep handing this um, tradition across and down to the next generation of theatre makers. So like with lots of master's degrees across the country, it's really specific and, and tailored. And this is to pantomime. So yeah, we'll be looking at the history, but then we'll be looking at, kind of ethical and moral questions of doing pantomime now we'll be looking at kind of how contemporary practitioners and performers have moved the genre on you know without completely getting rid of the, the traditional elements you're going to have a balance of both we'll be looking what it means to for a traditional panto in that way but yeah we'll also be looking at lots of practice there's going to be placements on commercial and repertory pantos across the uk and then at the very end they put that all into practice they have to learn about setting up their own theater company and setting up their own themselves as practitioners and self-employed artists and, and really cracking on and making their own work and and making the pantomimes of the future there's quite a lot to do so will they be will you be teaching them from the perspective of the director and the producer or both of those plus the t- perspective of um somebody acting taking part in the panto on stage the actor or actress that's a really good question andrew we're, we're We've, we've built the MA so that it can be tailored for anyone. So, for right. example, it may be someone who's recently come out of musical theatre and wants to carry on their progression as a performer. But it may be for people, a bit like, um, they used to be called work-based learning degrees. So, yeah. you, so, for example, if you're a seasoned professional, you, you may be uh, a director who wants to move into writing or a comic who wants to learn how to become a dame. You can, you can also learn on the job through the degree as well and have industry mentors and, and take your, use your own practice as your vehicle for learning so we've written it in in quite an open way that it can embrace it can embrace all those different elements and if you could define if you had to define in a snappy phrase um what makes a good pantomime because that's something you'll be teaching your students what is it what is the essential ingredient that makes one pantomime good and, and one 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 not good i gosh I, I, in, in one word or one phrase, I think it's a kind of a magical world, an anarchic magical world where anything can happen, the topsy-turvydom and so on. But it's got to have a heart and it's also got to have, in amongst all that anarchy and, and, and ridiculousness, it's got to have a heart. It's about family. It's about how we deal with threats and otherness, you know, the whole good and evil um, uh, thing that threads through pantomime. So... Yeah, but it has to be magical. You've got to come out feeling differently and, and feeling like you've been on a, a, 
a wild, wacky, crazy, magical, wonderful journey. Now, I'm told that you are touring your 27th pantomime, Dr. Marsden. Um, which one is it? Which one are you doing this year and where are you doing it? Oh, I'm, I'm uh, back. I've, I've been involved with um, Imagine Theatre directing the Halifax pantomime uh, in Yorkshire for, for the last decade now. And it's my 27th this year overall. And, and I'm doing Jack and the Beanstalk at the beautiful Victoria Theatre in Halifax. And are you are you directing, producing, or, or are you in it, or a I'm bit of directing. everything? Right. Yes, di- directing, um, and, very much so. And do we ever see you on stage, or are you always directing? I, Andrew, I tried. I tried. No one wants to see that. I'm a, I'm a much better director, um, and I've really built that over the last uh, couple of decades. And, and, and just finally, what is your favourite pantomime? Can I have two? Yeah, you can. I, I love Cinderella. I think, yeah. again, that magic, that adventure story, that sense of wonder and, and, uh, and so on. But I also love, and it wasn't a title for a while, but I also love the Beauty and the Beast story. Yeah. Again, it's about dealing with otherness and, 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 uh, and, and really getting a sense of, you've uh, got forgiveness in there. But it's magical. You've got people that transform into beasts and vice versa. So you've got all the panther ingredients in there. Well, it sounds great. Good luck with the uh, panto at uh, Halifax Theatre and good luck with the uh, course next year and, um, and, and a happy Christmas to you from all of us here. Likewise. Pleasure talking to you. Very good to talk to you. That's Dr Robert Marsden, who's Theatre Director, Head of Media Performance and Communication at Staffordshire University, which has got a first. It's doing a master's degree in contemporary pantomime. Oh, yes, it is. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pearce. This is The Andrew Pearce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Good night.